What is up, y'all? Daphne here, and welcome back to Seriously, What the Frick? This story, I believe, is one of those stories that we just know, but we actually don't really know anything about it. Like, we've heard about it, they're like, oh, you know, it's blah, 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 blah. But we don't actually know anything about it. At least that's how it was for me. Um, I've always heard about it, but I don't think I've actually looked up and, like, actually taught, taught myself, actually, like, learnt about what happened. But I had a general idea what it was. That, this makes sense. This makes sense. I, I make sense. Doesn't matter. I get to teach you this case now, just in case someone decides to quiz you at some point. This week, we are talking about the Lindbergh baby. I really don't know why I said it like that. We're talking about the Lindbergh baby. <laughs> Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. was born June 22nd of 1930 to his parents, Charles Lindbergh and Anne Murrow Lindbergh in Englewood, New Jersey. There's really nothing besides his parents being pilots. I think I read aviators, but that means pilots. I'm going with that. But on March 1st of 1932, when baby Charles was roughly 20 months old, so almost two, his mom, Anne, was taking a bath. And when the family's nurse, Betty Gow, came home around 10 p.m., Everyone noticed that no one can find the baby. The nurse went to the father, Charles, who went into the baby's room and noticed that the baby was not there. But instead, what was in the child's place was a ransom note that had really bad grammar and horrible handwriting. And this ransom note was left on the windowsill inside of an envelope. And it said, quote, Dear sir, have $50,000 ready. 25,000 of it in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you on where to deliver the money. We warn you from making anything public or notify the police. The child is in good care, indication for all letters or with a signature in three holes, end quote. So this was really hard to translate um, because of the bad grammar, but I think I got it. It didn't sound like that at all. I'll post the actual note on the Instagram or Patreon, however I feel about it. But like, it was asking for over $1 million when adjusting for inflation. And when the note talked about the signature, it's the, so it's the signature that was left on the letter and that will be on the Instagram. But the description is like two interconnected blue circles surrounded by a red circle with a hole punched in the middle of the red circle and then two more holes on the left and right of the blue circles. Um, it makes no sense, but go on the Instagram and that'll, that will be up there. Also, a complete side note, this reminds me, like this note reminds me so much of the JonBenet Ramsey note, but that was in the 90s and this is obviously the 30s. I'm not sure if this is just how ransom notes were written. Um, I've never seen a legit ransom note in person, but it just reminds me of it. So after Charles reads this note and is realizing that his child is now gone and someone took him, he takes his gun and walks around the house and the grounds with the family butler. And then they did find footprints or some sort of impressions on the ground of the baby's room outside, and then pieces of a wooden ladder and then a baby blanket. The butler then called the Hopewell Police Department and then Charles talked to his attorney and the New Jersey State Police. The investigators get to the house rather quickly and they do a pretty thorough search of the home and the area surrounding it roughly after midnight. There was a fingerprint expert that looked at the ransom note and the wooden ladder, but there was no usable fingerprints or footprints that can be used for anything. 
and this made the police think that whoever did this wore gloves or had something on the soles of their shoes to conceal the actual pattern of like the bottom of them. So there was no adult fingerprints in the babe's room, but baby Charles' fingerprints were found. Hence, there being no adult fingerprints. So after all of that, they really took a look at the ransom note, not because... Like, it was because it was super weird. The grammar was off, like, maybe it was on purpose, and the handwriting was maybe really bad on purpose. But when it was examined by the professionals, it that it was their job to do this sort of thing, they found that it was written by one person, and they figured out, since the actual English was super odd, they thought that their writer had to be German and spent maybe a little bit of time in America, so they knew English, but it wasn't, it was a little bit, it was like a broke English. Then the FBI created a sketch of the person that they believed did this, and I'm not quite sure how they figured that one out or created something that would have enough confidence to, to base their search on. Profiling wasn't exactly a thing in the 30s, so whatever. The investigators then began to look at the ladder, and the police noticed that it wasn't built very well. It was built by someone that knew how to do things with wood and had some experience in building, but it was, it was pretty poorly built. The police even went to the extent of examining the slivers of the wood to see if there were any fingerprints at all, and there were none. They were exploring every freaking option that they could to see who could have kidnapped this baby. They had police see how many different types of wood were used, the different patterns for the nails, and even if it was made indoors or outdoors. The New Jersey State Police was offering $25,000 in reward for anyone that could give any information to this case, and I'm not sure if that was already adjusted for inflation, but if not, that would be $513,000 today. Here's the thing. The kidnapping was being told by- it was being told everywhere. Everyone and their mom knew about it. Everyone was fully aware of what was going on. And everyone was so freaking interested in it that people would flock to the house. Hundreds of people would go to the Lindbergh's house and they would end up destroying a lot of evidence that was left. You know, the impressions, the fingerprints, literally everything that was left that could have been used to solve this case. All the people, they're like, hmm, true crime, baby missing. They all decided to flock to the house. On March 4th, 1932, there was this dude named Gaston B. Means, which is a name who had a discussion with Evelyn Walsh McLean, who was a very famous social aide at the time, and he was expressing to her the significance of getting this baby back to the Lindbergh family. Gaston said that he could find the kidnappers because a few weeks before the kidnapping happened, he was asked to participate in a, quote, big kidnapping, and that he was a friend of the guy that kidnapped the baby. I would tell this guy to get better friends, but it seems like he might come in handy, right? He then said that he made contact with the guy that asked him to kidnap this baby. His friend, lol, the following day, then convinces Evelyn to hand him $100,000 to get the child back, and that's roughly $2 million now. And this Evelyn chick gives him the money and is now waiting for the baby, and she waits for like a little bit, and eventually she's like, the kid isn't coming, is he? So she finally goes back to Gaston and it was like, you know, where's the kid? And if you don't have him, like, where's my goddamn money? Gaston now refuses to give the woman back her money, so she says fine, gets him arrested, and gets him sentenced to like 15 years for embezzlement. I don't know why this is part of the story, but I think it's just to show that this was a pretty big case and that people were using it to their advantage a lot. On the bright side, a lot of people did offer their help to find this baby, police, well-connected people, military colonels, 
you know, and this baby wasn't even a toddler yet and it's already missing. So everyone's already like very invested enough. But a lot of people that wanted to help out were like street lawyers, heroes from World War One, a bunch of colonels. And they were all relatively in the same boat with Charles, the father of the missing baby, that this had to be committed by some organized crime figures. Again, it was believed that the native tongue whoever wrote this note was German and Charles was able to kind of steer the investigation in a sense with this in mind. And Charles definitely thought that someone in the mom had done this. And I guess Charles had a buddy that knew people that ran a well-known speakeasy for mobsters to go and hang out with. And several crime figures, and I'm talking about Al Capone, Willie Marietti, you know, John Adonis, Abner's William. They had all spoken from prison and they're like, hey, if you give me money, I will give you baby back. And Al Capone had actually tried to get released from prison because he believed that he would be a lot more useful, you know, outside of, you know, prison. And that was his argument, but the police were like, oh, hell no. And he was never released. On March 6, 1932, another ransom note um, arrived at the Lindbergh's home and it was dated for March 4th and it was all the way back in Brooklyn, I guess. And it had the weird circle signatures on it. The ransom was now raised to $70,000, which is now roughly $1.4 million. And I think this was because of the rewards that they were offering. So like I said earlier, New Jersey was offering a $25,000 reward. And on top of that, the Lindbergh family was offering $50,000 reward to help fund their kid. And that was a lot of money. So in total, it was like $1.1 million. Remember, back to history class, this is in the 30s. This was during the Great Depression, which, fuck, I think we're about to hit the Great Depression 2.0. But money meant really nothing back then. People were using it for wallpapers and toys for their kids because of how horrible inflation was. But if you, I think you had to have like a very large bank account to kind of even afford like basic things. So I think the money did help out a little bit because the more you had, eventually you'd be able to buy your own soup or something. But I could be completely wrong. I could be completely, you know, misremembering my Great Depression unit from the eighth grade. Regardless, another ransom note arrived at the Lindbergh household. And the note said that John Codon should be the middleman between the family and the kidnappers. And that they requested a box size of what the money would arrive in. And that they better not tell the police any of this. You know, basic ransom note stuff. So John Codon was a really was really known. Um, he was really well known in the Bronx area and was a retired school teacher. He had offered a thousand dollars to the kidnapper if the kidnapper gave the child to a Catholic priest, which I don't really know if there was really weird intentions with that, but whatever. John had then got a letter um, written from the people that stole the baby and it was them asking John if he wanted to be the middleman with the Lindbergh family. And this is kind of how Charles knew that this was a legit thing. So John follows the instructions left by the kidnappers or kidnapper or whatever. So John then placed an ad that was classified in the New York American that said, quote, money is ready, Jafasi, end quote. And then John waited a little bit to hear what he had to do next. Um, You know, someone said that there was going to be a representative of the kidnapping group and that it was scheduled for a, a late, you know, late one evening at a cemetery in the Bronx. So this meeting happened, and this is all according to John, but the man was definitely foreign, but stayed in the shadows while they talked. John wasn't able to get a good look at his face, and he said that his name was also John, and that he was a Scandinavian sailor, and that he was a part of a gang that had three men and two women. And then he told John, the middle guy, that the baby was safe and that he was unharmed. And then I guess he was also being held on a boat, and the baby would only come back if there was like a ransom being paid or something. 
When John said that he doubted that this guy had the baby, this mysterious dude, whoever, you know, who was a talking shadow, said that he would give proof of the baby and that, you know, he was alive. The kidnapper then returned with a sleeping unit, which I think was just a bassinet. And Shadow Dude asked John, quote, would I burn if the package were dead, end quote. And John was like, what the hell? Like, why are you asking that? Like, what do you mean? And then Shadow Man was like, ah, I'm just kidding. The baby's alive and fine. And then kind of just like slinked off into the night. On March 16th, John got another bassinet and another ransom note via the, post the postal office. And Charles said, hey, like, that's my kid's sleeping unit. I guess that's just what bassinets were called back then. And then John put another ad in the in the home news saying, quote, money is ready, no cops, no secret service, I come alone like last time, end quote. April 1st, John got another letter that said that it was time for the money to be delivered. I also understand that that's just how like people got a hold of other people that they didn't know like through ads on like newspapers, but like that's not very secretive at all. Like, I would be very interested if I was just reading my newspaper and then I'd see something in the ad column saying like, hey, there's money, we're gonna meet up like last time, right? Like, just look at the dark, like, don't tell the cops or anything, sort of thing. Like, that could just be me, but like, it's, it's not, I don't know. I just find it a little dumb. So the ransom package came in a wooden box that was specifically made for this exchange. So in case anyone decided to waltz around town with their face showing, they would be arrested. Like, if they were just, you know, holding this box. Obviously, they'd be like, hey, it's that guy. So, and you know, they'd be arrested. The ransom money had also a whole bunch of gold certificates, Jesus. And that's kind of like a debit card for people who had actual gold instead of people just carrying around freaking a gold brick with them. And this was also pretty smart because gold certificates were about to be taken out of the money circulation and they wouldn't be making them anymore, nor would people be accepting them anymore. So it was to kind of see who would be spending these certificates, and the bills weren't marked themselves in order to keep track of this person, but the serial numbers were recorded. April 2nd, John was given a note again by another middleman who was unknown. He was like an unknown cab driver or whatever. And then John met this other fake John again. There's a lot of Johns and said that the money was only raised to $50,000 and the man that accepted the money gave John a note saying that the baby was in care of two innocent women. I'm not sure if that just means like they had nothing to do with it, like the baby was just left on their doorstep and these two women just decided to take care of this baby. I don't really know. On May 12th, 1932, there was this delivery truck driver and his assistant. They pulled, you know, over roughly 4.5 miles or 7.2 kilometers away from the Lindbergh home. The assistant needed to go to the bathroom and he needed to release himself and he finds this trader to his business and what he actually ends up seeing is a body of what looked like a toddler. The body was already decomposed, the skull was fractured pretty badly, and it looked like there was evidence of animals, animals feeding on it. It also kind of looked like the body was trying to be buried in like a very fast way. The body of the toddler was identified as Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., the missing baby I've been talking about. I mean, I'm sure y'all knew that. These would be a wild twist of events if this just so happened to be a different baby. June of 1932, officials began to really, you know, really go ham on figuring out whoever did this. There was this one chick named Violet Sharp, and she was a British household servant. I'm just going to call her a maid because household servant is a little bit degrading, but whatever. And she had been giving a contradiction information about where she was on the night of the kidnapping. I'm not quite sure what made her 
a connection, like why police like went after her or something. But she was ruled out eventually because she did eventually get an alibi on the night of the kidnapping. But on June 10th, right before she was supposed to go get questioned for a fourth time, she ended up ingesting a silver polish that contained a bunch of cyanide and killed herself. John Codon, who was also questioned since he was the muddle man, um, he was being questioned by the police and his search, like his house was searched, but nothing was found. And even Charles, the father of the now confirmed murdered child, stood by John's side, didn't think he had anything to do with this. Yeah, so everyone was being questioned at this point. I think people just didn't want to be in the caught in the middle of this case to the point that they would rather die than ever be considered a suspect or even charged with this crime. John actually remained pretty unofficially involved with this case. To the public, John was a suspect because he was such a middle man and had interactions with whoever did this. So he's going to be a suspect to the public. Um, but he did like do like an un unofficial investigation. And John got a little weird. They, his actions were described as flamboyant and not like that. Like it just got increasingly a little bit out there. One time while riding the bus, John said that he saw the suspect on the street and, you know, they were calling this guy Cemetery John and John Codon yells, Cemetery John! And then ordered the bus to stop and this confused the driver, but he went, sure man, and stopped the bus and ran through the streets to, you know, find the Cemetery John. But I guess the dude got, you know, he got away. And John was constantly criticized for being super exploitive, like in Liberty Magazine um, published a serial account of John's involvement in the kidnapping, and it was titled as Jeff Joffis Joffsey? I think that's how you say it. I'm just gonna Joffsey, whatever. Um, tells all. While John was going through all of that, investigators were working on tracking the money and trying to figure out something that would eventually get this guy in jail. Or these people in jail. It took a while, there were no developments and very little evidence, so they turned all of, you know, almost all of their resources into tracking this ransom money. They made this pamphlet with this pamphlet with all of the serial numbers that were on the ransom bills, you know, just like how dollars or just cash in general have like weird numbers on them. Those are serial numbers in case y'all didn't know that. And I used to track them because I was so interested in that whole thing. Then I wrote on them and I gave it to people, whoever, like whenever I could. And I'm still waiting to get one of those back, but whatever. Um, anyway, 250,000 copies were made of these pamphlets. And pamphlet, why can't I say pamphlet? Pamphlet. And they were all handed out and distributed to different businesses, mostly in New York. But a few bills somehow got all the way to Chicago and Minneapolis. But those bills were never found. By presidential order, all of the gold certificates were to be exchanged for other bills by May 1st of 1933. A few days after everyone was supposed to do this, this dude comes in and brings $2,980 to the bank for an exchange. The bank a little, like a little bit later on was like, oh no, those are from the ransom. The guy that went in for the exchange, he gave, um, the name he gave was J.J. Faulkner, but no one lived at the address that he gave was named Faulkner. There was a Jane Faulkner who did live there about 20 years prior to all of this, and she said she had literally nothing to do with any of that. And for roughly 30 months, a lot of the ransom bills were spelt throughout New York City. Detectives realized that a lot of these bills were being spent along the Lexington Avenue subway, which did connect to the Bronx, and that was, you know, and that included a well-known German-Austrian neighborhood. So they're like, all right, so we're roughly getting somewhere. 
On September 8th of 1934, there was this gas station manager who had this guy acting a little bit suspicious, and the manager wrote down the license plate of this dude. So they get the, so I think he calls the police and you know they get the license plate all tracked and it turns out this dude it was Richard Hauptmann and he lived in the Bronx and was an immigrant from Germany who had a criminal record. Yay. So Richard was arrested and whilst being patted down, I don't know, he was found with a $20 gold cer- uh, gold certificate in his pocket and then there was over $14,000 of the ransom money that was in his garage. He was promptly officially arrested, interrogated, and then was beaten at some point during the interrogation. Richard said that he had the money and other items that was left with him by his buddy Isidore Fish, who um, is now dead. And he was dead at this point. Um, And that's why he had all the money, because he got it in shoebox, which was the same shoebox that revealed that Isidore was dead. I know the story makes no sense, and I'm trying my best with it. This is definitely not my best episode, and I'm so sorry. I'm, it's it's a lot. Um, but this the money, according to Richard, was because Isidore owed it to him because it was something about a business deal, and Isidore owed it to Richard, and that and that was his reasoning about him just having an automatic cash in his garage. And Richard said that he had nothing to do with the kidnapping. He was like, I don't know what y'all are talking about. Sorry. So Richard seems like a relatively okay suspect because he does have a lot of the ransom money just hanging out in his garage. So when the police searched Richard's house, they found a notebook that had a sketch of how to construct the ladder that was pretty similar to the one that was found on the night of the baby was kidnapped. John Codon's phone number and also John's address, then a section of the wood that was in the attic of the house um, after being tested was the exact match to the wood that, you know, was used to make the ladder. That was at the the crime scene. So Richard ended up being indicted. Um, on September 24th of 1934 for extortion and $50,000 for ransom, and then was later indicted again, like two weeks later, for the murder of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., and then two days later, he then surrendered to the New York, uh, to the New Jersey authorities by the New York governor at the time, and these were to face charges directly related to the kidnapping and murder of the small child, and then he was put away into the Hunterdon County Jail in Fleming, Flemington, New Jersey on October 19th of 1934. Um, so Richard Huptman's trial was dubbed the trial of the century for this kidnapping. Reporters swarmed the town, ever needed a scoop or their take on the murder case. The evidence against the suit was crazy. It did include ransom money that was found in the garage, testimonies saying that his handwriting and spelling were a little bit too similar to those of the ransom note. The defense actually called in experts to rebut this, the writing evidence, but one, only one ended up testifying and the other two just decided not to. There were photographs of the wood and the construction of it, the type of wood that was used to make the ladder, and how it matched exactly to the wood in his attic, and then four oddly placed nails, um, like the nail holes lined up with the ones that was also in his attic, the address and phone number of John Codon, etc, etc. Like, he's clearly the one that just did this. And, you know, Richard was convicted and was immediately sentenced to death. And he did appeal a few times and these were all denied. And his main appeal reasoning was because, quote, this kidnapping couldn't have been a one-man job, end quote. April 3rd of 1936, he was electrocuted by an electric chair. And after his death, there were some debate about whether or not this investigation was ran correctly and if the trial was fair or not. And that was because there was some witness tampering and some planted evidence. 
there was a reporter that admitted that he wrote um, the address and the phone number on of John Codon in his closet because it was written, it was like scribbled on his closet wall or something like that. So there's a reporter saying that he did that. Um, neither Charles or John actually identified Richard as being the weird cemetery John dude. And even John Codon, when Richard was in a lineup, you know, plays lineups when they have a bunch of suspects and either a victim or someone that saw the person do whatever it was, you know, and that's one way they get identified. John couldn't pick out Richard in the lineup and he said that he was not the John that he talked to at the cemetery. John just said that, you know, Richard looked different. He had different hair. His eyes were heavier. And Richard's wife, um, Anne Huptman, was actually really upset that her husband was blamed for this crime and then was sentenced to death. You know, and she fought for his innocence all the way up till her death in 1994. She wrote books, went on shows. She just said that there was no way that he did this, but we'll never really know. And that is all I have for you guys this week. Um, I know this was story was not my greatest. It's it was very hard to you know even research for just because I mean it's it's a definitely an older case. A lot of it's very skewed. Um, I don't really know. <laughs> it's just this this case was. I'm so sorry, but um, let me know what y'all think about this in the subreddit comments, DMs. I don't know. Y'all know how to get a hold of me now. Check out the merch store, the Patreon. I'm also now on TikTok, and I hate that I'm on TikTok. Um, I don't know how to use it, so bear with me. I'll make the videos cool and actually make it watchable. Um, so right for now, like for now, they're just little sound bites. Um, so eventually, I'll figure out how to make it like an actual TikTok or something. I don't know. I'll make it watchable at some point. Like every week, um, I say this, 25% of my monthly proceeds go, you know, from the store and the Patreon, go towards foundation like the Doe Network and the Cold Case Foundation. On Patreon, episodes come out a week early. Y'all get bonus merch, buying the same shit. Bonus episodes out first Monday of each month during the season. You know, y'all, y'all, y'all know the things I say at the end of the episodes. I'm just gonna leave. <laughs> Be kind, make decent decisions, and I'll see y'all next week with a brand new episode that will make you say, seriously, what the frick. Bye, y'all.